Section 86 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. Section 86 Socialism Its Economic Fallacies. A Socialist Argument. The working man is the sole producer of wealth, therefore he should be the sole owner of it. And yet the capitalist appropriates nearly the whole product of the working man's labor. The only remedy for this abuse is the socialistic commonwealth, each member of which will be insured the possession of what he produces. The Answer That labor is the only producer of wealth is one of the fundamental errors of socialism. And as this is the very cornerstone of socialism as a popular movement, the movement has no reason for existing if the principle is false. Certain socialist writers have been forced to admit its falsity, and yet they continue to preach the doctrine to the mass of their followers. The aim of socialism is to revolutionize society by placing it on an industrial basis, and by making the working men the owners and administrators of all wealth, and how is this to be accomplished? By taking out of the hands of individuals and transferring to the commonwealth all the sources and means of production, mines, lands, factories, machinery, raw materials and finished products, together with the entire business of transportation, distribution and exchange. Private property will be confined to the compensation received for labor performed. Each member of the community must contribute his quota of manual labor and each will receive from the public storehouse, or from the public treasury, what his labor is worth. All distinctions will be leveled. A doctrine of equal rights of the strictest type will be carried into effect. Men, women, and children will have the same rights, and as far as possible, the same duties. But advanced socialistic theory does not stop here. Society will still be more thoroughly revolutionized. Marriage will be placed on a new basis. Men and women will remain united in marriage only as long as either or both of the parties to a marriage desire. Family life will be abolished. Children will never learn to know or love their parents, for as soon as they see the light of day, they will be taken like orphans or foundlings and reared under the motherly and fatherly supervision of the state. Domestic happiness, we are told, will be merged in the happiness of the community. Family affection will be superseded by a love of humanity. The commonwealth will be a democracy. The elected representatives of the people will administer the affairs of the state under the people's supervision. Government and law will be reduced to the minimum. But what is the motive or the necessity for so drastic a change? The socialist answer that such a revolution is necessary because under the present dominance of private capital, the many are becoming poorer and the few becoming richer. In former times, the means of production belonged more generally to the individual workman. What he produced was his, and no one disputed his title to it. But today the means of production have passed into the hands of a comparative few. One man, thus equipped, employs hundreds or thousands under a system of combined labor which enables him to produce, by means of a hundred pairs of hands, enormously more than was possible in times past. With this fact as a basis, the socialist argues thus. If a hundred workmen produce ten times as much today as they could have produced two centuries ago, 
they are entitled to ten times as much compensation. The only way to secure such compensation is by making the workingmen themselves the owners of the means of production. If they fail then to get their due, the fault is theirs, formed into a commonwealth in which each of the members will be obliged to work, in order to contribute to the common store. They will severally receive the full value of their labor, or at least as large a percentage of it as can be afforded from the general fund. Private capital, then, as being the great source of industrial evils, is to be done away with in favor of collective ownership. The account we have given of socialism is based upon standard socialistic literature. We mean such works as those of Marx, Engels, Liebknecht, Bebel, Carpenter, Vax, and others whose writings are zealously circulated among the comrades and recommended in the booklets of socialistic organizations. If a socialist makes any attempt to disavow any of the above doctrines, he can easily be brought to book. And now, what are we to think of all this? The socialists profess to have a reason for the faith that is in them. Let us see if it holds water. They take their stand upon the principle that everyone is entitled to be the owner of what he produces. Let us grant the principle. But what then? Well, say the socialists, is it not evident that a hundred men in any industrial establishment produce vastly more wealth than they would have produced a couple of centuries ago? And where does the excess go? Into the pockets of the capitalists. And they have not moved a little finger in the production of it. The poor toiler gets barely enough to pay his rent and feed his wife and little ones. Meantime, the capitalist goes spinning about in his motor-car, sailing to the ends of the earth in his palatial steam-yacht. Socialist orators are wont to add to this picture some vivid touches that never fail to move the indignation of their hearers. Now it seems to us that any fairly intelligent working man ought to be able to detect the falsity of the principle that labor is the only producer of wealth. In the production of wealth there are other agencies at work more effective than labor. What is the real reason why a working man can turn out twenty dollars worth of shoes in a day, whereas formerly he could not have made a single pair of shoes worth five dollars? The answer is obvious. In the old days they knew none but the simplest methods of production. Today the methods of production are more elaborate and immensely more effective. The distinguishing features of the system are chiefly these, the use of machinery, the uniting of many hands under one general direction, the division of labor, the utilization of the physical sciences, superior management, and finally the possession of capital, which is constantly renewing the sources whence it is derived. It is therefore the perfection of the system that multiplies the productiveness of the workman. The amount of manual labor is actually less than formerly and its efficiency has been raised a hundredfold. And the change is due to the system. Therefore it is not the working man that produces wealth, but the system and the working man combined. But to what do we owe the system? We owe it to thought, science, genius, superior power of administration, and other such causes, but not to the labor of the working man. To adopt Malik's terminology, we owe it to ability as distinguished from labor. If this be conceded, it is manifestly absurd to attribute a surplus value to labor of which the fruits are seized by one who does nothing. The truth of the matter is that labor borrows a new and extraordinary power from ability, and if there is any truth 
in the socialistic principle that every man is the rightful owner of what he produces, surely the able minds that have added so enormously to the productiveness of labor should receive the larger share of the reward. Now this is so obvious that the more shrewd and intelligent socialist writers have had to acknowledge it. Encountering educated criticism, they have been forced to see the necessity of reconstructing the theory of socialism in this as in many points, and yet they have not the courage to go before any meeting of their comrades and tell them that, after all, working men are not the only producers of wealth. In such meetings they do precisely what Mr. Wilshire does in his pamphlet, Why the Working Man Should Be a Socialist. You know, or you ought to know, that you alone produce all the good things of life, and you know, or you ought to know, that by so simple a process as that of casting your ballot intelligently, you'll be able, etc. Or they address the man in the street, as the author of the socialist catechism quoted by Mr. Malik speaks to budding socialists, who creates all wealth? The working class. Who are the workers? Men who work for wages. Men who work for wages. Isn't there a shade of ambiguity in the phrase? We had thought that the socialistic movement had only working men in view, that is to say, manual laborers, including mechanics. But they are not the only workers who receive wages. Clerks, bookkeepers, reporters, editors, all work for wages. And are these the downtrodden classes for whom the socialists draw the tear of sympathy? Some of our readers may think us hypercritical. Salary is the polite term used for compensation received by the higher type of workers. We must caution our readers that no such distinction is intended. Mr. Wilshire, who is regarded as an authority among socialists, takes Mr. Malick to task for supposing the socialists mean by working men and laborers only manual workers. They include all men, he tells us, who contribute to production, inventors like Edison, and great industrial captains, even though millionaires. And yet, it is quite impossible that in the leaflet quoted above he could have meant any working men but manual laborers. Otherwise, we may ask him with Mr. Malick, does Mr. Wilshire seriously wish us to believe that he is telling Mr. Edison that, if he will only cast his ballot intelligently, he will be able to treble his income at the expense of richer men. It is only too evident that leaders of this class mean one thing when addressing manual laborers, and another when dealing with educated critics. The truth is that socialist thinkers have begun to see not only that room must be found in their commonwealth for men of exceptional ability, but also that exceptional compensation must be given those for their superior services. Now this means that some will be wealthy, and others comparatively poor. And the conclusion is frankly accepted by more than one socialist authority. But its consequences for socialism seem to be ignored. Socialism aims at abolishing all distinctions of classes. And here we have a distinction of classes regarded as inevitable, a distinction, too, of the most invidious kind, one based on the possession of material goods. If envy for the rich plays so important a part, in the present movement, how will citizens of the humbler sort in the new commonwealth endure the presence of a class whose exceptional gains and exceptional prosperity will be thrust upon their notice every hour of the day? It must be conceded, then, that ability would have to be stimulated by the prospect 
of exceptional rewards. As for still higher motives, such as disinterested devotion to one's fellow men, these, under any system, may actuate a choice few. But no one except an extreme enthusiast would suppose that whole classes of men will be stimulated to deeds of self-abnegation by such a phantom idea as humanity in general. Even the Christian virtue of charity, embodied though it is in the beautiful earthly life of the Son of God, has not so effectually raised the world to so high a level of self-obliteration as the socialists propose to do by the spread of their peculiar ideas. They fancy that when the world is converted to socialism, it will find itself automatically rid of the old Adam. Self will be sunk in a love of humanity. Artists will sing with as little hope of gain as nightingales. An inventor who has labored for years at a new piece of mechanism will make a present of it to the public treasury, and then be lost in the ranks of his fellow workers. And how are they preparing working men for this reign of unselfishness? It is not by exciting their greed. It is not by telling them, and falsely telling them, that they are the only producers of wealth, and that they should seize what is theirs. It is not by holding out to them the prospect of personal possessions and personal property, increased at least tenfold in the commonwealth they are going to rear upon the ruins of capitalism. We are confident that the great mass of English-speaking workingmen are too shrewd to be deceived by any such quack system of economics, and that they will see that in any commonwealth some distinction of classes is unavoidable. Nature itself, as well as the essential conditions of human life, will range men in higher and lower social strata. The great problem, therefore, is not how to abolish classes, but how to bring them into harmony, and this with a view to creating the highest sum of happiness for all classes. Such is the charlatan character exhibited by socialism in its more popular aspect. There is a more dignified phase of the system, which is no less unsound. Scientific socialism is a phrase that has done yeoman service among those who are taken by high-sounding designations. The root principles of the so-called science must be sought for in its theory of value. Marx distinguishes two kinds of value, use value and exchange value. The use value of thing is that which it has as ministering to human needs and desires. Its exchange value is its worth as an object of barter, or its value in the market. The use value of a pair of shoes is the utility of the shoes in protecting the feet of the wearer. If the same pair of shoes be exchanged for ten pounds of butter, that quantity of butter represents the exchange value of the shoes. And here we must introduce to the reader a novel principle of socialist economy, which is that the total exchange value of a commodity is to be measured solely by the amount of labor involved in its production. The proposition is so ridiculous that even a child could refute it. The labor of a lifetime might be expended on an object without adding to its exchange value. The thing produced must be useful, or at least in some way desirable. No dairyman would exchange a quarter of a pound of rancid butter for even a dozen pairs of paper shoes, no matter how much labor had been expended on their making. Why are certain kinds of wood, say mahogany or ebony, valued either in their raw state or in manufactured articles? It is merely because of their superior value as supplying the needs or otherwise satisfying the desires of the purchaser. 
but it is useless to multiply examples of commodities that are valued for their use quite irrespective of the amount of labor bestowed upon their making labor has its value but it is not the only factor that goes to the production of exchange value from the theory of value that is derived from the theory of surplus value which the socialists make the immediate basis of their practical demands a man's labor capacity may be regarded as a commodity brought to the labor market a working man exchanges this labor capacity for a sum of money or his wages the exchange value of labor say the socialists must be determined by the same standard as that of a pair of shoes or of a pound of butter it is represented by the amount of labor that has produced it but the immediate producers of labor capacity are food and the other necessities of life and they in turn derive all their value from the amount of labor involved in their production or preparation hence if a man's maintenance costs a dollar a day a dollar represents the exchange value of the labor capacity which he places at his employer's disposal now under the present system as the socialists argue only a fraction of the working man's time is consumed in producing that dollar's worth of commodities for his employer the time required for producing it is called the necessary labor time the remaining time yields the working man nothing and is a source of pure gain to the employer the value of the labor performed after the necessary labor is called by socialists the surplus value it is this that creates capital and produces untold wealth for the great leaders of industry socialists admit that there is no injustice done the working man in so much as his labor capacity is worth a dollar and a dollar is what he receives and yet he must labor beyond the necessary labor time producing wealth for others and getting none of it himself the fault they say lies not so much with the capitalist as with the system change the system and transfer the means of production to the working man as a body divide the proceeds among them after deducting what is needed for the continuance of trade and the conducting of the commonwealth and then the nearest approach will have been made to a man's receiving back as much as he has given thus far the socialist reasoner what are we to think of this fine-spun theory our space will not permit more than a brief exposure of the fallacy of the argument but no more is needed we have seen how worthless is the theory of value things produced do not derive their exchange value from labor the theory of surplus value is no less absurd it is supremely absurd in the first place to reckon the value of a man's labor capacity by the cost of his maintenance food and other material things contribute of course to the production of labor capacity but it would be absurd to attempt to establish an equation thus so much food etc equals so much labor capacity so much food does produce so much brawn though the ratio varies with the individual but brawn is not brain nor is it skill or industry or power of application and yet all these qualities go to the making of a good workman it is a mistake therefore to suppose that labor capacity can be measured by cost of maintenance no less absurd is the idea of necessary labor time there is no ground for asserting that there is any necessary time as distinguished from surplus time or that under the present system the value of man's labor is necessarily greater than what he gets for it what does the manual worker really contribute to production the answer to this question brings us back to a point we have already developed a hundred workmen organized under capital do in some sense produce immensely more than would be possible if they worked separately 
or without much organization. But the difference is due precisely to the organization and to other elements of the modern system in which the laborer is a comparatively insignificant factor and to the perfection of which he has contributed absolutely nothing. How utterly unreasonable, then, is the assertion that the working man is compelled to donate to the capitalist nearly the whole of the fruits of his labor. We are not disposed to ignore the real abuses of capitalistic industry. We are aware that although the lot of working man generally has been vastly improved, there are still classes of workers who are defrauded and victimized by their employers, and we are not without hope that their grievances may be remedied by legitimate means. Let them use the just means that have succeeded in the past, and some hope of improvement will appear. If one half the propaganda devoted to communistic schemes had been diverted into more practical channels, socialism would not have the pretext on which it leans today for aiming to revolutionize the industrial world and with it society in general. As a matter of fact, socialists have done little or nothing to improve the lot of the working man. We confess we should be delighted to see working men in general receiving a larger share of the public wealth, which they certainly help to produce. But it is exceedingly questionable whether a much larger share would make for the working man's genuine happiness and the higher good of society. We should be no less delighted to see the working man, after spending a reasonable time in manual labor, devoting his leisure to the cultivation of his mental faculties and to healthy amusement. In the abstract, there is nothing incompatible between working at a loom during a part of the day and enjoying the products of the fine arts during the remainder. The only question is whether and to what extent it is practicable. Under socialism, all this and much more is promised. But unless socialism in practice is much better than socialism in theory, it is a promise which can never be fulfilled. End of section 86. Recording by Chris Pyle.